All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, on the line, I've got Trita Parsi. He used to be at the National Iranian American Council, and now he's uh, one of the co-founders and uh, principal bosses, whatever his title is, something like that, over at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. And, of course, their great website, Responsible Statecraft. Dot org, where he has this very important piece from February the 21st. By caving to Israel, Biden opens the door to war. Yeah, I might have thought that this subject was at least dormant for a little while, but no. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing, Trita? I'm doing great. Great to, have, to hear your voice again, Scott. Uh, good. Uh, very happy to have you back on the show. And uh, I really like this story because you catch us up on some recent history. Um and uh, explain the proper context, I think, pretty well here about the danger of war with Iran. But I would note to start that there is a piece on antiwar.com today by Jason Ditz, where uh, he is covering the fact that the CIA director, William Burns, has admitted that Iran has not so-called restarted, even though they never really had one in the first place. Uh, they have not restarted. They're not resuming their nuclear weapons program, uh, were his words. And uh, Jason Ditz also has a write-up about the big so-called scandal about the 84% enriched uranium-235. It was actually just a misconfiguration thing. Is small trace amounts, no reason whatsoever to believe that they're enriching up to weapons grade, and 84% isn't weapons grade anyway. But um, so just to put a couple of rumors about Iran's nuclear program to bed, as of today, it is still a latent nuclear deterrent rather than a nuclear weapons program. Isn't that correct? Oh, absolutely. And even if they were to weaponize, which according to Bill Burns would take a couple of weeks, they still do not have, they still have not tested a bomb. They still have not figured out exactly how to put it on missiles, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the U.S. assessment is still that there's about two or three years away from that scenario. Uh, now, of course, from the perspective of those who want to see military action, etc., there is a tendency to significantly exaggerate these things. I'm not saying that there isn't a truth in it, but an exaggeration is something that you know makes something that is true much worse than it is. Well, as you just uh, said, this the two is a long-standing thing. practice on the Israeli side. I mean, I think you and I talked about it before. The joke on the Israeli side since 1992 has been that Iran is always two to three years away from the bomb. Time passes, but they're always two to three years away from the bomb. Well, even the whole thing about two weeks, too, is just they do this knowingly and deliberately. They just extrapolate the total amount of enriched uranium in the country at all. And then they say, well, we just think that they could magically turn that into 90 percent uranium-235 in the space of this amount of time, and then that's tantamount, one, two, skip a few, yada, 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 and then they would turn that weapons-grade uranium into an actual usable, functional warhead in a couple of weeks. 
talk about exaggerations. It's completely ridiculous. Well, actually, I think Bill Burns himself did say that it would take them two or so years in that last interview. Oh, I do that. Oh, I thought you said weeks. Oh, no, it, weeks to have the material. For right, right, right. Yeah, the so-called yeah, breakout capability. Oftentimes, instead yeah. in the media, is that they they focus just on the, the few weeks or few days to have the material for the bomb, and they treat it as if that is a bomb. Right. And, and and then you know get this threat inflation as if the Iranians are weeks away from having a bomb. That's not the case. Uh, thankfully, Burns kind of corrected that, but the media loves a, a more scary story, and that's the one they've been going with. Yeah. Well, and the Israelis do too. Um. I think they just consider, isn't it right, that they just consider even a civilian electricity program to be a nuclear weapons threat. As, <laughs> as we agreed at the beginning, it is a latent deterrent, right? The Ayatollah is saying, look, I've mastered the fuel cycle. Don't mess with me, right? Which is a fair yeah. reading of it, you know, but you, but not worse than that. But what you have from the Israeli side is a desire to make sure that there's constantly a conflict between the United States and Iran so that... Iran does not become normalized and the U.S., you know, moves on from the Middle East and focuses on other things. So you constantly have to have something there that keeps the tensions alive. And at a moment when actually the JCPA was in play, uh, the U.S. had not pulled out. It was fascinating to see how much of the Israeli rhetoric had shifted away from the nuclear program and towards the missile program. Now, suddenly we were hearing that the missile program is an existential threat. Right. You know, at some point it would be slingshots. There's right. a desire to constantly keep those tensions alive because from the Israeli perspective, that serves their interests. They don't want to see the United States and Iran uh, resolve their tensions. Forget about, forget about becoming friends. That's not going to happen anytime soon. But resolving their tensions so that the U.S. would shift this focus away from the Middle East. And then constantly keeping that fire alive keeps America's attention in the Middle East. It keeps America's media focused on the Middle East and makes us uh, makes the public believe that for some reason, this is actually really serving U.S. interests to be really involved and, and, and really be on the edge of war there all the time. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, in the article, you go through the history and you talk about how W. Bush told Ehud Olmer, no, and how Obama I didn't even remember this part. I remember that Obama had put a story in NBC News about the assassination of the scientist. But you even cite where he sent Hillary Clinton out there to complain about it, which was really burning the Mossad up to murder all those scientists and demanding yeah. a halt to it. Wow. And then uh, Donald Trump comes in and you got things to say about Trump telling the Israelis to cool it as well. Is that right? Well, I think in the case of Trump, it was actually fascinating. He had more of an attitude of like, well, if you guys want to go bomb it, go ahead and bomb it. Uh, but you're on your own. Um, and, you know, he wasn't indicating that the U.S. would get involved. And I think that kind of called these really bluff. Mm -hmm. uh, but there were moments where Trump himself was considering doing it under pressure from Netanyahu. And that was after he had lost the elections and he thought, or at least Netanyahu thought that that created an opening for him to actually bomb Iran uh, based on some theory that that could reverse the elections or, you know, um, do something so that he wouldn't have to give up power. And, and, and it was in those months that Milley and others were working very hard to counter that and, and make it very clear that that should not be an option. So there's always been efforts, whether it's from the top, whether it's from other parts of the U.S. government, to push back against the Israelis when they wanted to start a war 
with the design to drag the U.S. into it. Yeah. What we're seeing now is something that has really surprised me. And two instances now, we have the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, as well as the Israeli, uh, the U.S. Ambassador to Israel, Knights, um, saying things that very clearly leave the impression that the U.S. is no longer actively and publicly pushing back against the Israelis when it comes to taking military action. The first instance is after the Israelis used drones to attack a military facility in Esfahan. Asked about it, instead of distancing the U.S. from it, perhaps talking about the destabilizing potential of such things, uh, Blinken essentially goes in and provides a defense and a rationale for the Israelis doing this. Then you have Knights give, saying in a, co a conversation with the Conference of Major Jewish Organizations, that the Israelis are going to have to do whatever they think they need to do, and we're going to support them, which is a very thinly wheeled uh, reference to military action. Compare that to the past in which, for instance, at one point, incidentally, a certain Vice President Biden had said something that left the impression that the U.S. was giving a green light to the Israelis to take military action. And Obama himself went out and told CNN, there's absolutely no green light to the Israelis to do this. A very clear statement. And the reason why this is important is because when the Israelis have considered seriously taking military action, at least twice during Netanyahu's term, one of the key reasons that caused him not to go forward with that attack and caused elements in his own cabinet to oppose it was because of the fear of the tensions that would be created between the United States and Israel. Yeah. Because of the very clear American opposition for the Israelis to do this. If we're now taking away that pressure on the Israelis and the Israelis think actually it would be okay and the U.S. is going to have Israel's back, mm -hmm. that can create a very different scenario inside the Israeli cabinet in which a decision to take military action may actually uh, uh, be approved in a manner that it wasn't in the past, precisely because of a fear that this would ruin the relationship between Israel and the United States. Mm -hmm. Hang on just one second. Hey, y'all, the audiobook of my book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, is finally done. Yes, of course, read by me. It's available at Audible, Amazon, Apple Books, and soon on Google Play and whatever other options there are out there. It's my history of America's war on terrorism from 1979 through today. Give it a listen and see if you agree. It's time to just come home. Enough already. Time to end the war on terrorism. The audiobook. Hey guys, I've had a lot of great webmasters over the years, but the team at ExpandDesigns.com have by far been the most competent and reliable. Harley Abbott and his team have made great sites for the show and the Institute, and they keep them running well suggesting and making improvements all along. Make a deal with expanddesigns.com for your new business or news site. They will take care of you. Use the promo code SCOTT and save $500. That's expanddesigns.com. Man, I wish I was in school so I could drop out and sign up for Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom instead. Tom has done such a great job on putting together a classical curriculum for everyone from junior high schoolers on up through the postgraduate level and it's all very reasonably priced. Just make sure you click through from the link in the right margin at scotthorton.org. Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. Real history, real economics, real education. Now, look, I know you're short on time. Can I get another minute or so? Sure. Okay, so um, 
you know, I know that especially like during the Obama years when they were getting the JCPOA through that you were reporting very closely on this and spending time over there in Switzerland and wherever they're negotiating it and all of that. So I'm interested in your insight about, you know, the discrepancy between the narrative about the danger of a nuclear weapons program here versus the reality that you and I have agreed on for all these many years now, well over a decade now, Trita, that they have a civilian program. It's inspected and safeguarded by the IAEA, and they're not diverting uranium to military purposes, but they could probably only would as a result of us attacking them, us and Israel attacking them if we do. And that's what you say in this article here. You want them to make a nuke, attack them to stop them from making a nuke is what's going to make them get a nuke. But so then what I'm getting at is I wonder about, you know, the real policy making and the, the Biden government is basically the same Obama government again. Uh, a lot of the same principles here. Um, you know, to what degree is the policy based on what they really know to be true versus the public relations that, oh my God, the Ayatollah is this terrible threat to our friends, the Israelis, and maybe to us, and what are we going to do about it? It seems like they can switch back and forth. They could really make the Israelis' promises based on the PR that they put on TV, not based on the actual reality, which is the Ayatollah is not a danger to anyone outside of Persia or maybe Ukraine. So I, I think there's been shifting motivations. There's been moments, of course, in which, you know, there's been some uh, legitimate views inside or some authentic views that this is a threat or that this could uh, unravel some belief of a balance in the region. There's times in which it's very much been about making sure to keep the Israelis at bay or keep them happy. Uh, and I think we're now in a moment, I would say that I do see a difference between the Biden administration and the Obama administration. I don't think the Biden administration from the top, meaning from the president, had the degree of commitment to the JCPOA as Obama did. I'm not saying that he doesn't want to renew it. I'm not saying that he's against it. I'm saying that the degree of commitment to it is very different. It was never a top priority. And an issue like this that is so politically charged for it to be pursued successfully, it really has to be a top priority. Otherwise, it's not likely going to go through. Instead, we're going to see the kind of mess we're seeing right now. That doesn't mean that the Iranians didn't mess up a lot of the negotiations. I certainly think they did, certainly in the last round. Uh, but this was never a president who came in and saw this as his legacy. This was Obama's legacy. Yeah. Right now, I think a key concern is, and by the way, in this administration, this team cares much more about what Israel thinks than the Obama administration. Not that the Obama administration didn't care about it, but they were willing to take a fight with the Israelis if they felt that this was a no-brainer for U.S. interests. Uh, the Biden team um, seems to think that the most important thing for a whole set of reasons is to just avoid a fight with the Israelis. And that has also caused a, a significant uh, absence of political will at key moments when tough decisions needed to be made. Mm -hmm. Now the situation is even more complex because now it's not just about the Israelis. It's on the one hand because of how the regime is repressing its own people and the protests that we see, but perhaps most importantly because of the Iranians supporting Russia in Ukraine. That has really become a key factor, mm -hmm. even more so in Europe than in the United States. In Europe, it has really shifted perspe uh, perspectives on this matter. Because the Europeans never viewed Iran as a threat. I think they were, you know, deep in their hearts, they would very much agree with you, Scott. It wasn't the nuclear program that was the threat. It was the war about the nuclear program that was the threat. That's what they were trying to prevent. Not that they were okay with Iran getting a nuke, but they had a much more realistic assessment 
of how far the Iranians were from that point. Mm. A war, another war in the region led by the United States or Israel would be a complete disaster. And that's what they were trying to prevent. Now, with Iran supporting Russia, which some in Europe view as an existential threat to European order, Iran has completely changed uh, in the perspective of the Europeans. Now Iran is actually in support of a major threat. Uh, and that has really changed perspectives, political will. You know, is anyone willing to do, you know, sack, you know, what is the value of the JCPOA in that context? It was a no-brainer before because the real threat was the war over the JCPOA or over the nuclear program. Now the real concern priority for the, uh, for the Europeans is what's happening in Ukraine. And then Iran is entering in on the wrong side from the European perspective. And, and this is also shared uh, by the U.S., but the distance that the Europeans have moved is greater than the distance that the U.S. has to So it, it, in that sense, it further reinforces what I said earlier on. Iran is a lesser priority. The JCPOA is a far, far lesser priority. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the good news, they're still in the MPT, and there's still no reason to believe that they're breaking out towards the nuke. I'd like to believe that, come on, they're not really going to attack unless they break out and they're not going to break out unless they attack. And so cool. And let's just leave the status quo how it is. It's held so far. And so true, true. But the thing is, the status quo, and I wrote about this a year and a half ago, saying that this is where we would end up, which is like a, a zombie state. The JCPA is not alive, but nor is it dead. And the status quo is sufficiently um insufficiently bad for everyone so no one wants to change it but is it sustainable and i doubt that it is sustainable for many more months particularly if the israelis are playing these some of the games that they are right now and i think we're also going to get to a point in which because of the devastating state of the iranian economy which the regime itself is mainly responsible for um uh the absence of sanctions relief is going to make it even more difficult and the iranians right now if they want the JCPOA, I'm not so sure if they know how to get the U.S. to want it, given all of those other factors that I mentioned. And that could then lead to them escalating the nuclear program to get the attention of the West. Yeah, boy, it's a tough one because you're right. The Americans, they don't really have too much of an incentive to deal. They would have to lift all these sanctions and start treating the Iranians with respect and lose all that political capital without really... Right getting an actual change on the ground that matters, right? Those additional protocols have already been implemented. They already poured concrete in the Boucher reactor, et cetera. Yeah, but the, the thing of when I say escalating the nuclear program is to do things that actually reverses this with the calculation from the Iranian side that this would force the U.S. to get serious about actually, um, you know, breaking out of this current state yeah. uh, in which there's no deal, but also there's no crisis. Well, you know, I was talking with Charles Freeman the other day no fool. And he said, yeah, no, there's a risk that we could get in a forefront war with Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran right now. This is how bad our leadership is, how yeah. clumsy and detached they are from the reality of the dangers that they're playing with. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. It, it is very scary, I have to say, because there is now serious conversations in D.C. about how war with China would look like. All of these different things that, you know, three years ago or five years ago, you know, would not only be fantasy, it would be kind of ridiculous fantasy. Why would you even talk about that stuff? But here we are. Yep. All right. Listen, I know you got to go. And so I can't ask you all the rest of my great questions I was going to ask you, but uh, I hope we can <laughs> Next talk time. again soon. Appreciate you. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Scott. Hell yeah. 
All right, you guys, that's the great Trita Parsi. He's over there at the Quincy Institute for International Statecraft. That's responsiblestatecraft.org. The Scott Horton Show and Anti-War Radio can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.